I know a family that in some ways is a, is a, uh, a microcosm of our current cultural divide. And to protect their identity, I'll call them the Smiths. Now, the Smiths are believers who all love Jesus. They are all active in their local churches. They are worshiping and they're serving the community of faith and engaging in outreach beyond the walls of their churches. And yet this family is currently in chaos. It's not chaos over issues of doctrine or theology. They're not in chaos over issues of sex or money, things that people often fight about. This family is in chaos over politics. You see, half of the family is Republican, and the other half is Democrat. And the Republicans watch Fox News and listen to Rush Limbaugh. The Democrats watch CNN and MSNBC and listen to NPR. Each group gets versions of the news that emphasize and reinforce and deepen their pre-existing views. And over the last decade, as our national politics have become increasingly polarized, so has the Smith family. Each half of that family has come to believe that the other half is not just wrong, but evil. That the views they hold are evil. A year ago, their annual Thanksgiving gathering turned into an angry shouting match with harsh words and hurtful accusations thrown in every direction because of politics. Politics has become the great divider of our time. I find myself wondering as, as you listen to this, as I listen to this, do we ha- perhaps get any glimpse of ourselves in any of this? I think the Smith family, like many believers, forgot one vital fact, that when we repent of our sins and become followers of Jesus, we receive the mercy of God. And because of his mercy, mercy, he withholds judgment that we deserve, and he forgives us. And in addition, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus asks kingdom citizens to live with a different set of values. Not the partisan and petty values of this world, but the values of God's kingdom. Values like the ones that we find in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. And this verse is serving as a theme for all of these messages that we're having about justice and mercy. I'd like us to read these words aloud together. Will you join me, please? What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? These are not instinctive human values. They're values that must be learned. We learn them when we commit ourselves to live as kingdom citizens. Kingdom citizens where we make the choice that the kingdom of God comes first, that the kingdom of God is our highest priority, not our personal views and preferences. And Jesus makes this kingdom orientation profoundly clear at the very start of his ministry because his very first invitation to repent is not based simply on our individual needs. 
it's based on our need to become part of God's kingdom. Look how Jesus launches his ministry. It's recorded in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Begins by saying, after John was put in prison, and that's a reference to John the Baptist, the herald who went before Jesus to pave the way for him to come. And when John goes to prison, then his time of ministry is over, and it's time for Jesus. So Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here was his message. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus begins his ministry by urging us to receive good news, good news that the kingdom of God is coming. And he invites us to enter into this kingdom through repentance. Now repentance always is associated with our need to be forgiven of our sins by God. Repentance is the gateway to salvation. And I find it absolutely fascinating here that Jesus frames his first appeal to repentance very differently than the way we often present it. He didn't say, you're a bunch of sinners, so repent. Even though that would have been true. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is coming, so repent. I think the implication is clear. We sin because we live according to the values of this world. Our lives, our thinking, our values are very out of step with the ways of God. We simply are not suited to be good citizens of God's kingdom. And therefore, we must repent. And and what does that look like? What does repentance mean? How do we do it? When we repent, we confess to God that we've fallen short of his expectations. We admit that our attitudes and our actions have harmed ourselves and harmed others. And most importantly, we express a desire to change. And then we display our repentant heart by being baptized as an expression of our faith in Jesus. And in that moment, we receive God's mercy. And we become not just saved individuals, We become kingdom citizens. And this is very good news. Because of God's great mercy, we become part of a kingdom with a purpose. The purpose of the kingdom is to restore the world by undoing the damage of Eden. You see, through his kingdom, God is in the process of fixing what human beings broke. And we broke everything. We saw that last week when we looked at Genesis chapter 3 so we could understand what happened with Adam and Eve. And as we painfully saw, they blew it. They were full of pride, not humility. Adam was disobedient. Eve was deceived. And they left great consequences in their wake. As a result of their failure, all humanity is separated from God. The ground that we walk on, the ground that farmers toil in, it's cursed. Men and women live in conflict with each other, and Satan is a continual presence trying to tempt us away from God. Because of Adam and Eve, we deal with sickness and famine and wars and natural disasters. We deal with the ongoing problem of pride. 
and an unwillingness to hold our personal views with some humility. Instead of living in God's paradise at peace with others, we live in a very broken world where so often we are at odds with others and unfortunately at times we add to the chaos. In other words, the fall of mankind changed everything. It affects us and this world spiritually, emotionally, physically, and relationally. It is a complete and utter disaster. And yet there's hope. There's hope because of God's mercy. Genesis 3 tells us that a day will come when a descendant of Eve will crush the head of Satan. And that descendant is Jesus. He will come to subjugate Satan and to restore all that has been lost. And that moment of restoration begins right here as we read in the book of Mark, this moment when Jesus launches his ministry. He's ushering in a new season of mercy. The mercy of salvation offered through Jesus. It's a mercy that God wants to give us so he can restore us and renew us and save us. It's a mercy he brings into this world to save the world, to restore the world, and to renew the world as he intended it to be. And that's why he's building his kingdom. And this means that we, as kingdom citizens, must learn to think differently. We must let the truth of God transform the way we view ourselves and others and the world in which we live. And that's because the kingdom of God is not like any earthly kingdom. It transcends nations and geography. It transcends language and ethnicity and cultures and customs. It transcends social status and wealth and poverty. It trans- transcends political parties and personal preferences. We, as kingdom citizens, must make the choice not to get caught up in the partisan passions of our times that lead to anger and hatred and division. And we must let God teach us to learn how to love people who are not like us. People whose views may differ radically from ours. So we can learn to live in gracious and merciful community with Now, this is not some lofty, unachievable ideal. This is real. This is possible. And Jesus shows us the way. When we read a bit further into the book of Mark, we learn about the 12 disciples that Jesus selected to be with him and to be his closest friends. And as we learn about these people, we recognize that Jesus did not select these men based on their similarities. They were very different from one another. For example, one disciple is Simon the Zealot, a passionate Israeli nationalist. He hates the Romans and wants to see them driven out of his country. Another disciple is Matthew, a Jew who has sold his soul to Rome in order to become a tax collector and gain incredible wealth. Let's think for a moment, what do you think a political discussion between Matthew and Simon might have been like? 
I suspect it would have been heated and probably hostile. And normally you would never find two people like this living in such close community and able to achieve harmony, but they do. Why? Because Jesus says to both of them, follow me. You see, they both need God's mercy. Mercy. They both are offered God's mercy. And they both respond to God's mercy. And when they do, it means that they must repent and be committed to letting God change them. Among other things, it means they must become willing to look beyond their political preferences, to look beyond material wealth and success, to look beyond which nation rules another nation and leave all of that in the hands of God. And their priority must be to focus on living as kingdom citizens. Kingdom citizens whose priority is to follow King Jesus. Jesus gives them an incredible opportunity, an opportunity to embrace the mercy they have received from God and extend that same mercy to each other. It's the mercy of salvation that saves their souls. It's the mercy of salvation that invites them to hold their own views with some humility. It's the mercy of salvation that offers them the opportunity to adopt a new worldview where God's kingdom and the value of that, values of that kingdom are what motivate them and what shape their lives. And what's true for them can and should be true for us. You see, as we sit here this morning, we are not some random collection of individuals. We are here as a small subset of kingdom citizens. And we, like Matthew and Simon, can let Jesus transform our worldview so that we can live together in gracious, merciful community. Worshiping together. Serving together. Extending mercy to each other. And to the world around us. As we each do our part to help build the kingdom of God. So as I think about this, then when I hear Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats mock and ridicule each other or accuse each other of evil motives, I shake my head in sorrow. I've sometimes heard those kinds of comments right here in our church lobby. It seems to me that's not just. It's not merciful. It's not humble. It's not kingdom thinking. Jesus calls us to citizenship in a great kingdom that surpasses all of this stuff. And he makes it so clear because his message of salvation is not individual based. Yes, we are saved individually, but salvation is kingdom based. Because our salvation never is just about us. That's why Jesus announces his ministry with this invitation to repent and become kingdom citizens. It's because of what Jesus has done and through his kingdom that we receive and experience God's mercy. That's what Jesus announces here in Mark. 
And then when we turn to the book of Luke chapter 4, we discover some additional things. We learn that through God's kingdom, we have the opportunity to extend God's mercy to others. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God will focus on mercy over injustice. This is a key part of God's work to restore what was lost in Eden. And we get to be part of it. Look at what happens in Luke 4, verses 14 to 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Let's picture this scene. It's a Saturday. The Sabbath day. Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue and he's recognized not just as a hometown boy but as a visiting teacher of some renown and Visiting teachers are often asked to read from the scriptures. So he's handed the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And this scroll is large and it's heavy. And so he lays it down on a reading table at the front of the synagogue. It's there for that purpose. And he begins to unroll it. He can't just flip the pages like we do with our Bibles. He has to unroll that scroll. And he has to do a lot of unrolling because the verse he wants to read is in our modern Bibles found in chapter 61. It's not very close to the beginning. So there is this long pause while the people sit. And Jesus unrolls and unrolls and unrolls the scroll. And then he begins to read. And these verses that he reads, which we just read, are well known to the people. It is a prophecy about the Messiah. So Jesus reads these words. And then there's another long pause because the people need to wait while he rolls the scroll back up. Another long, dramatic pause. He gets the scroll rolled up. He hands it back to the attendant, and then he sits down. It's not that he returned to his seat in the assembly. He sat down in front of the people. This is the practice. A rabbi, a teacher, stands up to read from the scriptures and then sits down to teach. So when Jesus finally sits, the people have this sense of expectation. He obviously picked this particular passage for a specific reason. Is he now going to give them some new or exciting or dramatic interpretation of Isaiah's messianic prophecy? And Jesus blows them away. Because what he gives is not a new interpretation. He says, I'm the fulfillment of what I just read. Now, now that statement would astonish them. 
would amaze them and overwhelm them. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. And I'm coming to rescue people from the brokenness of this world, the injustice of sin and disease and oppression. Who could do that but a Messiah? Now, we sometimes spiritualize these words. And we treat them as a figurative statement about people who are oppressed because of sin. We view them as blind to their need for God, so Jesus is coming to set them free. There certainly is truth in that. But we cannot limit Jesus' comments in that way. If we turn to the book of Isaiah and read this quote in context, it's about restoring people to God and restoring the world around them. It's about healing people spiritually and physically. It's about restoring society and relationships. In other words, this quote from Isaiah, this prophecy from Isaiah, is a prophecy about undoing the damage of Genesis chapter 3. It's a prophecy about bringing about the kingdom of God because in God's kingdom, there is no blindness. Not physical blindness or spiritual blindness. In God's kingdom, there are no poor people, either spiritually poor or physically poor. In God's kingdom, no human being ever oppresses another human being based on race or poverty or power or taking land or anything else. This prophecy describes God's great mercy over all of the injustices that flourish in our broken world because of sin. And this is the fullness of the salvation message. Jesus comes to save us from ourselves. And he comes to save and restore our world. That's the breadth and depth of what salvation means. Now, the word save obviously doesn't appear in either of the Bible passages we've read. But as we know, it's a foundational part of Jesus' message. When he calls people to repent, it's in order to be saved. His very name means salvation, and he was given that name to remind us that his purpose is to save us. And yet we cannot limit the mercy of God to simply our personal salvation. This becomes clear when we understand what the word save actually means. It's a translation of the Greek word sozo. Dr. Shane Wood is a professor at Ozark Christian College and something of a Bible scholar. And he offers the following insight. The word sozo, save, is used indiscriminately in the Bible to describe the restoration of all that is broken, both body and soul. It powerfully summarizes the incarnation of Jesus as a declaration of war on Genesis chapter 3. Jesus came to completely overturn the curse. He came to set all the wrongs right, to restore all that was broken. He came to save the lost and to cure the sick, to redeem the wayward, to restore the impaired, to give light to those grasping in darkness, and to give life to those imprisoned in the miserable clutches of death's decay. Jesus came to sozo, and our ministry should be no different. called Jesus our Savior, 
when we do, we must recognize that he came to save us from everything. Because of his mercy, he rescues us from the justice we deserve. And because of his mercy, he invites us to join him in this work of the kingdom, some of which is described here, where we rescue people from injustice they do not deserve. That's what mercy is all about. And throughout church history, believers have taken Jesus at his word. And that's why Christians start hospitals and do medical missionary work. It's why Christians in our community started the Eugene Mission. It's why many local Christians work diligently to help the homeless break the cycle of dependency. It's why many Christians volunteer with the Egan Warming Centers and Food for Lane County and so many other community organizations. They do it to extend the mercy of God into our community and help build the kingdom of God, to help restore what was lost. It's why we do things here at Garden Way like Kidmax and Project Hope and Thanksgiving baskets for people in need. And we need to understand that these activities are not separate from our mission. They are integral to our mission This is our mission to help save the world spiritually, yes, but also emotionally and physically and relationally. It's our mission to help usher in the kingdom of God. And this is part of how we share God's mercy with others. And as we listen to our king, King Jesus, speak these words from Isaiah as recorded here in Luke. It is a powerful reminder that as kingdom citizens, we cannot ignore injustice. And we should be observant enough of our own lives that we try diligently never to add to the injustice of our world. And we should let the Holy Spirit show us how we can help rescue people from injustice so they can experience the great mercy of God and hopefully be saved from their sins. This is the fullness of the mercy of salvation. It's a mercy that we experience personally as God withholds the judgment we deserve. He takes away our sins and he restores us so that we can have a loving and gracious relationship with God our Father. It's a mercy we experience through God's kingdom as he reshapes our values to align with the values of his kingdom. And as that increasingly happens, then we can have loving and gracious and merciful relationships with others. And this is a mercy we get to pass on so we can help rescue people from the injustices of our broken world. When we understand and embrace the breadth and the depth of the mercy of salvation, we move beyond the values of this world that divide people. learning to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God helps us live together in peace. Peace with other kingdom citizens and peace with the people in this very broken world all around us. Now throughout this message I've highlighted politics as a particularly hot-button current issue that tends to divide people. 
And yet, if we're honest, we need to admit that we can get crossways with others over all sorts of issues. Our ways of getting into disagreements seems almost limitless. And we can fight with other people over money and sex and position and power and status. Here in the church, we can squabble over whether communion should be celebrated before or after the sermon. We can squabble over whether or not we get to sing our favorite worship songs on Sunday morning. You see, pride, this desire to get our own way, this desire to have our preferences win the day, that's pride. It tends to push us into conflict. And the antidote always is to learn to walk humbly with God. And I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to be humble when I recognize that I do not deserve anything from God. He owes me nothing. I am here for one reason only, because of God's great mercy. The mercy of his salvation. The mercy that that rescued me from spiritual darkness and brought me into his kingdom of light and love. The mercy that Jesus purchased through his death and resurrection. And that knowledge of God's mercy helps me to hold my preferences loosely. To hold them with some humility. That knowledge helps me to be more merciful to others. And most importantly, that knowledge drives me to be a person who does not add to the chaos and brokenness of our world. But instead to do everything I can to help people experience the incredible mercy of our great God. So to wrap this up, I have a couple of thoughts for you. First, it may be that you've never experienced personally the mercy of God's salvation. And if that's the case, then I want to invite you to head over to the prayer corner after our service in just a few minutes, and we'll have a church leader or two there. And they would love to talk with you and pray with you and help you get connected to God. You could become a kingdom citizen before you leave here today. And so I want to encourage you to give yourself the privilege of receiving the mercy of God. Second, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've received God's mercy. You've experienced it. You are a kingdom citizen. I think that raises a couple of questions. Are you increasingly learning kingdom values and letting the values of God's kingdom shape your life? more than your own personal viewpoints and preferences. And I also wonder how the Holy Spirit might prompt you to share God's mercy with others so you can help rescue them from the injustice of our broken world. Ponder that. Pray over that. Say, God, what would you have me to do to be an ambassador for your mercy?